when you're on these um, social media platforms uh, like Facebook or something like that, and uh, and they, of course, can be useful ways to stay connected, they can also be um, uh, pretty uh, uh, ordinary ways to uh, spread um, different ideas and misinformation or disinformation or however you might uh, choose to describe it. Um, and I have a, uh, I have an elder bro older brother who, um, for various reasons I won't go into, uh, uh, I haven't um, had any face-to-face uh, uh, -face contact with for probably 30 years or so. Uh, and he lives in the northern part of Germany. Uh, but uh, some uh, time ago, uh, we, uh, um, well, they call it friend. Uh, it's a strange uh, descriptor that Facebook has uh, co-opted uh, in its business model uh, to describe people that you connect with through its platform as, quote, friends, as if that's the way to make friends, uh, which, of course, it is not. Uh, but um, in any event, we are friends uh, on Facebook. Uh, we don't have a lot of uh, contact and we don't have a lot in common. Um, but uh, he posts things every now and then and I look at them and I think about them. And um, and he posted something a couple of weeks ago and I looked at it and I thought about it and I thought, I don't agree with this. And uh, so I thought I'd talk to you about it today. So, um, uh, and this is what it was. And it, uh, on its face, it's inoffensive, right? Uh, so let's just read it. I'll read it to you. Quote, and you probably have seen this one because it has been spread around on different social media platforms over the last couple of years, but let me read it to you. If you collect 100 black ants and 100 fire ants and put them in a glass jar, nothing will happen, uh, says this post. But if you take the jar and shake it violently and leave it on the table, the ants will start killing each other. Red believes that black is the enemy, while black believes that red is the enemy, when the real enemy is the person who shook the jar. The same is true in society, uh, this meme says. Uh, men versus women, black versus white, faith versus science, young versus old, etc. Before we fight each other, we must ask ourselves, who shook the jar? And the name at the bottom of this uh, is said to be David Attenborough, uh, who of course is famous for his uh, 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 role in uh, narrating uh, some quite extraordinary uh, vistas and uh, uh, environmental uh, uh, documentaries and uh, uh, and also, of course, in the campaigns that uh, he runs uh, using that platform that he has built. Um, now, let me just say a couple of things. Like most things on the internet, um, both the attribution of this comment to David Attenborough is probably wrong. Uh, and uh, so, in other words, he didn't invent this or say this, um, that somebody just decided to spread it with his name on it. Uh, and also the science behind it as to what it is that leads ants to fight each other is probably wrong as well. Uh, and uh, I had, in preparing for this talk, I had um, uh, a, a lovely uh, journey uh, looking at some ant fanatics uh, and um, uh, watching these crazy videos of what uh, ants do. And, um, and it's amazing. Uh, I think the people were probably more curious than the ants. But um, uh, uh, the reality is that uh, these type of ants are incredibly... Uh, um, uh, 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 they, they, they really seek to protect uh, the uh, area in which they inhabit uh, and of course their desire for food so as to feed their colony is pretty strong and uh, if you uh, happen to be of a different, I'll call it a tribe although 
I'm sure ants don't call themselves tribes, but if you're a different species of ant and you just happen to find yourself amongst some others, well, look out, Charlie. Um, uh, it will not be a pleasant experience. Um, and uh, so putting all that aside, right, so put the science aside, put the fact that it incorrectly uh, attributes this probably to David Attenborough, who probably has uh, no connection to this, um, none of that worried me, right? Uh, when, when I read this, I thought, well, superficially, this seems to be uh, making a reasonable point, namely that we should be aware of the agitators of disputes and indirectly uh, we shouldn't be an agitator ourselves. Uh, the suggestion, of course, being that uh, without agitators, we can all live in harmony despite our differences. And you could say, well, you know, that's, that's not a, an unreasonable proposition to put forward. It doesn't, it's not overly offensive, not something I should get, get really excited about. Uh, and yet I thought about it for a bit. I, I, I thought about it and I thought, well, I, I actually think this is wrong. I think it's actually shallow. Uh, and it's a shallow analysis that uh, fails to heed the reality of what actually contributes to both division and unity in life. And that's because its premise, where it starts from, is that without external disturbance, we will live in harmony despite our points of difference. But as is often the case uh, with I'll, I'll call it a utopian vision, um, it fails in the face of fundamental reality. Uh, consider these two aspects of what I think uh, actually part of the reality of life. The first is the reality that um, the nature of man, and when I say man, men and women, um, is such that uh, that nature, uh, the nature of our being exposes the potential for conflict and division. Right? So the first element is let's consider, well, in this little analogy, let's consider the nature of the ants right? and, and how they actually do respond and what actually leads to the aggressive response to those who are not part of their species uh, or their kind. right? And it isn't only the agitator, there's this inherent... Uh, nature within the being uh, that leads to action that causes conflict or tension or division around about us. And it's no different in mankind. There is an inherent part of our nature uh, that exposes itself at times uh, and in a way that will lead to tension and conflict and division in our life. The second is the way in which I'll call it the ant an analogy, right? The ant analogy. Um, suggests that we can point to some sort of external contribution as the cause of division if it occurs, thus delegating responsibility away from ourselves. Now, you might not have picked up these really deep points when you uh, uh, read this silly meme, uh, but that's what I got to thinking about. I got to thinking about the nature of man, and I got to think about uh, the importance of taking responsibility for our own actions and our own potential contributions, whether it be a contribution to division or whether it be a contribution to unity. Because to me, that's really the core of what we should be focusing on here. It's not about let's see whether there's something external to ourselves that is causing us to be in a state of tension or conflict. No, 
It is about looking to ourselves to understand what we are able to do in our contribution to avoid the state of conflict or tension and to use uh, the biblical word that uh, often gets mentioned, to attain a state of unity. So overall to me, the lesson in this little ant analogy uh, doesn't match reality. It, it fails to acknowledge that the internal uh, issues that affect unity and division uh, between us uh, which, uh, and therefore it undermines the suggestion that conflict is all the responsibility of some external shaker of the jar. Right? There are all sorts of shakers of the jar, and sure, let's not unnecessarily shake the jar. Uh, let's not unnecessarily cause a disturbance to the force or whatever else. Right? Let's not cause that disturbance. But the real issue here is to understand the contribution that individuals make to the life that they lead. Now think about what the Bible says about this. In contrast, the Bible deals with the core of our reality. And look, in the time available today, I can't go into detail about what the Bible teaches about the nature of man. But let me summarise the story, summarise the lesson that we get from the Old Testament uh, narrative um, where God uses his creative power to create life and to create an environment that is ca capable or able to sustain life. Into that environment, God creates man and woman as diverse beings living an apparently ideal existence within the garden. Right? So that's how the story starts when we read in Genesis chapter 1. But that apparent utopia, let me call it, um, is disturbed. It gets disturbed by what? And it gets disturbed, yes, by people reacting to an in external influence, but doing so with pride, with desire, and with disobedience uh, in both the man and the woman as they pursue an independent path that they're able to pursue that is built upon an apparent desire for uh, autonomy or independent action uh, that is also built on an unfounded confidence that can they can deal with the future and all its uncertain outcomes by uh, reasoning their way to a perfect outcome, even though they have a limited understanding. Right? That's the story. Right? Uh, in essence, right? This, uh, these two individuals who come together with a challenge in their life, who are presented a temptation and they respond to it with pride, uh, with desire, unchecked desire, and with disobedience. And they think that they can work out the consequences. They think that those consequences won't be as bad uh, as perhaps others have warned them that they may be. And in this case, it was God himself that warned them. And um, so we're presented in the Bible narrative, if you think about it, uh, with the fall, uh, as Adam and Eve take of the fruit uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the forbidden fruit, as it's sometimes described, and there is an immediate impact. Think it now. There's a the impacts, of course, are far far more reaching than what I'm going to uh, capture here. But think about these two uh, two aspects of the uh, uh, consequence of the fall. 
well, few aspects, not just two. Right? So they gained some self-awareness. Right? They, that includes, of course, their awareness that they were naked and therefore exposed and, uh, and vulnerable and uh, susceptible to uh, uh, what might come upon them, uh, whether that which brings shame or whether that, might, that which might bring harm to them. Uh, and importantly, we also see, I'll call it, a souring of relationships. Right? Firstly, with God, right, there is uh, uh, guilt that leads to shame, that leads to this almost comical effort to hide from God, and then ultimately, as the full consequence of the, uh, the prideful action takes effect, it leads to separation between mankind and God as Adam and Eve are cast from the garden, uh, separated from the tree of life, and are thrust into the harsh reality of our human existence. Right? So uh, the, the, the relationship with God is soured as a consequence of them uh, acting upon uh, their inherent nature. And we also see some tension and reproach in the relationship between Adam and Eve. Now, we're not told much in the story of Genesis, just you know, what a happy couple they were and how their marriage was going. We don't know any of that. We're not told. But we can assume that it was pretty good. Right? They were in a good environment and things were going well. Um, but here, right, uh, once they acted, right, immediately we see tension. Adam, uh, somewhat limply uh, and weakly, uh, he seeks to transfer to Eve uh, blame for his own decisions and his own actions and denying in the process his own responsibility. And one would expect that there's a, 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 a something happening in the background here. You know, I bet you she wasn't too pleased about it and he's uh, carrying on a treat, right? And, um, uh, and that sort of tension right, came as a consequence also of all of this. Now, as the Bible narrative continues, of course, the it almost goes from bad to worse, doesn't it? Uh, because uh, uh, so they get thrust out, and they have a family, uh, they've got a couple of boys, uh, they grow up, uh, and uh, lo and behold, uh, there's conflict between the boys. There's a bit of sibling rivalry, uh, you might uh, loosely describe it, although I think that tends to understate the nature of the rivalry that was going on. Uh, and so as between Cain and Abel, uh, we see that there was uh, conflict born of jealousy, of rage, um, and uh, and ultimately it led to murder. Uh, and uh, and then further division, as Cain himself uh, uh, was, uh, uh, having slain his brother, uh, he is, uh, becomes an outcast, right? He's separated from the family altogether. More tension, more than just tension, right? But uh, uh, great tragedy and distress and division that flows from all of that. And of course, the narrative continues in similar vein, and we can take the story right through. We can go through the, you know, the circumstances leading up to the time when the Lord sent a flood. And in fact, there's a nice uh, verse to read here. Uh, let me just read it to you. Genesis chapter six and verse five. We're told, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God looked at the nature of man, looked at the way in which he was dealing with himself and the opportunities that this uh, world presented him, uh, and said, look, you know, uh, they might have an ability to devise a way, uh, but it's a pretty poor outcome. And indeed, there's evil within his imaginations in the way in which he might devise it in that way. Indeed, it uh, goes on to say that God repented that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart 
that man's nature should come out in this way. Interestingly, if you read at the time of the end of the flood in uh, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, uh, it's, uh, it says this, it says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Then he goes on, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. So the nature of man or his imaginations are not identified as having been reformed in the process, uh, right? The nature of man is still identified where the imagination of a man's heart is evil even from the days of his youth. Uh, and God is saying, of course, well, I'm not going to bring uh, my punishment to bear upon the whole of the earth. I'll be a bit more focused in the way in which I deal with mankind and in what opportunity lies for them. And, of course, the story continues into the New Testament and we're doing a massive leap uh, in the detail and you'll have to go back and uh, read and uh, be aware of the detail. But you go through the Old Testament stories and it's so often teaching us of uh, uh, the tendency of mankind and where that tendency is built from an inherent nature uh, to uh, pursue uh, his own dreams or his own vision of that which is right. And yet the, uh, uh, you know, those, that uh, view of what is right in the eyes of man so often leads to death. And we see that in, it repeated throughout the stories of the Old Testament, even as God dealt with the people directly, even as he built for them uh, protections and, uh, uh, and a law that uh, could regulate uh, uh, their behaviour so that they would be more righteous or godlike uh, in their approach. Uh, that nature of man showed itself throughout the uh, stories that we get in the Old Testament. And we find ourselves in the New Testament, of course, where there's a, a, a new hope, and I'll come to that in a minute. So all of this, it seems to me, uh, as you consider the nature of man, directly undermines uh, the substance of the ant analogy. So I was right to get upset when I read that. Right? Just get that. I'm, I'm just justifying my uh, reaction here. Um, um, because the nature of man brings social and interpersonal strife. You have to do something about the nature of man not just be forever looking to see who it is who's shaking the jar, who is it that's agitating the particular group that you're concerned about, but rather you should look to yourself to see what can I do about the nature of man? How can I change that? Uh, and, of course, the nature of man impacts personal relationships, it corrupts society, uh, and indeed the institutions that uh, society seeks to establish. Uh, in other words, there is a disturbance in the internal force of man that leads to division without the need for any external agitator. And there is little doubt when we all sit back and look around us that when it comes to man's dealings with man, um, it is often easier to find a path of division than it is to find a path of unity. Very easy to divide people, much more difficult to both knit them together and keep them together. Right, uh, and that's just the way of man. Right? It's the it's the history is uh, borne it out time and time again, uh, and um, uh, so while we have an inherent desire to be together, the reality is that the emphasis on ourselves, our ego, uh, perennially emerges uh, and operates to drive us apart. Turn with me to Mark chapter twelve. 
And we can see that uh, point of division occurring uh, in personal relationships, in marriages, in families, in workplaces, in associations, in clubs, in charitable bodies, in political parties, and even in nations. Indeed, in every structure that is aimed at bringing individuals together for mutual benefit around a common venture of some sort or cause, we can see the ability for it all to go terribly wrong and fall apart. And that's why the teaching of the Bible focuses or the essence of unity is to be built upon love. Uh, and we can see this as Jesus identifies the greatest of all commandments here in Mark chapter 12 when we read from verse 28. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, well, the first of the all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And I always find it interesting, that little preamble. And so before he goes on to uh, the command to love, he says, you've got to stop and listen. He says, Hear, O Israel, what? There is one God. The Lord our God is one Lord. So it is an inherent and important part of the uh, greatest commandment of them all that we should listen and recognize that there is one God. Then he goes on, this one God says this, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This, he says, is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Well, that's a pretty good start in a New Testament context for us to begin to understand uh, how it is that we should relate to each other and what we might do to build the point of unity rather than just fuel uh, inevitable points of division. The starting point is, as I said, to listen and recognise God as the one God and to establish a relationship with him through obedience and, we understand from the rest of the teaching that Jesus brought us, to the receiving of the Holy Ghost in this age. We should approach that relationship with what sort of attitude? Well, I'll, I'll use the word vigour. Right? Uh, we should be... Uh, vigorous in our approach, because it says, with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength. And so the call here is to take it seriously, this relationship with God that you were to build. And then he says that there is a second commandment and its character is like that of the first. They are similar. They're a flip side of the coin, you might say. And it is that we should love our neighbour as ourselves. If you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and what we see it is that, is that it's the character and the influence of the love of God uh, that love to be manifested first in our relationship with God and then with our neighbour that we find a platform for unity. And uh, I won't read all the verses here, but you can uh, trace them through as I uh, touch on the, the various qualities of love uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and reading from verse 4 to verse 8, we see that love, I'll put it in the modern English, uh, love, as distinct from charity, 
we're told, suffers long. It is patient. As it shows itself in your life, it will bring with it patience. Charity or love is kind. It does not envy. It envies not. It vaunts not itself. It does not boast. Love is not puffed up. It's not proud. It does not behave itself unseemly. It is not rude in its dealings with others. It seeks not her own. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily provoked or not easily angered. It thinks no evil. It keeps no record of wrongs. It rejoices not in iniquity. It doesn't delight in evil and those things that are uh, at enmity with God. It rejoices in the truth. In other words, it upholds the truth and sees the value of recognizing the truth uh, and uh, uh, not watering it down. It bears all things or it uh, seeks to protect and it's always protecting. It uh, trusts all things. It hopes all things or it always hopes. It endures all things or always perseveres. It never fails. Love never fails. And those qualities of love are all important principles, you might say, um, but seemingly so readily forgotten or put aside in the, quote, heat of the moment, end quote, when you're dealing with somebody who has offended you. It is so easy to uh, fall to our uh, inherent nature as we react to those around about us. Uh, and uh, we do so in a manner that um, seems to not emphasize the quality of love that we are called to show. And of course, and that the reason for that is that it's not just when we're um, sitting uh, peacefully, as we are today, with friends who are like-minded, um, that we need these principles to apply in our life. Rather, it's when we're faced with the choices to say and do this thing or the other thing, where those choices have the potential to lead to adverse reactions or influences on other on others, that's when we need to call upon it. And let's not fool ourselves. Unity is something we have to work at, whether it be uh, in a personal relationship or in a marriage or in family or church or a work environment. Uh, you've got to work at it. And uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, recognises this. If you turn with me to Ephesians in chapter 4, and just reading from verse 1 to 7, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with all humility or humbleness and gentleness, with long-suffering or patience, forbearing one another, right? putting up with each other, enduring or suffering each other, and doing so in love. And then in verse 3 it says, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, where to endeavour to achieve an outcome is to work hard for it, right? is to, is to recognise that you need to work hard to achieve the unity even of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then it goes on to remind us that there is one body 
There is one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Uh, repeated throughout that little uh, section, of course, is, is one, right? It's the oneness, it's the unity that's emphasised here. Uh, and uh, uh, that unity of what uh, is the body of Christ is the spirit, is the hope to which we are called, the Lord, the faith, the baptism that brings us all together, the God, the Father of all, who's above all and in you all, is all about bringing us as individuals, ones, right, individuals together in unity with him. And his emphasis here uh, on oneness uh, is uh, to remind us of the source of what it is that brings us unity. And uh, uh, it's also uh, on the effort, as I said, of the, that's required of us if we are to retain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. When we speak about the state of the world prior to the Lord's return, uh, Jesus makes an interesting observation. Go to Matthew chapter 24. And the interesting observation here is about uh, the, the state or the quality of love that would exist at the time prior to his return. And uh, when we have a look at the world in which we live, I'm sure we can relate to this. It says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 10, And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. Right? So there's plenty of plenty to stir the pot, if you like. There's plenty of agitators about, uh, and there's plenty of points of agitation uh, within this world prior to the Lord's return. And because iniquity shall abound, so within this world, within this melting pot of a whole lot of people and uh, seeking to carve out their existence and build whatever it is they consider to be important to themselves, prior to the Lord's return, iniquity shall abound. That's the character of the world in which we live. And what else will happen? The love of many shall wax cold. Uh, trying to find the point of love uh, uh, within that mess becomes very difficult because it's gone cold. Uh, there are plenty of other things that heat people up and heat up their passions, uh, but where is the love of God uh, within that mix? And how can we uh, find it, ignite it, and live by it is the challenge that we are given. Because with love being cold, of course, the quality of love and its ability to heal and to unify is also lost. So think about... Um, uh, the qualities of love, um, and indeed uh, what we read as the platform of unity in the church. Um, in each of those qualities, we can identify um, what can actually work against unity as well as what might work for it. So if love is patient, if, if love is kind, etc., then we can see that disunity or discord comes with a lack of patience and a lack of kindness. It comes with envy, uh, where desire to achieve uh, is elevated uh, to a destructive jealousy uh, for that which others have 
but which is not yet attained by yourself. Disunity comes with boastings or with the promotion of self and an emphasis on the ego. Disunity comes with pride, uh, which is, uh, um, if you like, uh, something that uh, encapsulates uh, uh, the key source uh, of disunity uh, between uh, us uh, when pride uh, takes its root. The Greek word, by the way, is translated in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, as puffed up. And uh, that seems to, in, in my view, sum it up pretty well. Uh, it's all about blowing or inflating yourself. <laughs> and if you blow yourself up too much, you know what happens with the balloon, don't you? It just bursts. Right? It just doesn't survive. And uh, uh, that uh, pride uh, will ultimately come back as the Bible tells us, to be uh, that point of destruction uh, in our lives. Disunity comes with rudeness or behaviour that offends others, uh, as we continue in the list uh, that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. Disunity comes uh, if we uh, turn into uh, and continue as individuals who are seeking ourselves, for ourselves, self-seeking. If we're easily angered, if we uh, remember the previous actions and hurts of others. I don't know how, how many times in the 40-plus uh, years that I've been involved in the fellowship and, and, and often at points uh, uh, of oversight in the church where you sit down with those who've got a broken relationship, it appears, and what you tend to hear is this catalogue of complaints that goes back years and years and years. Uh, and the holding on to points of grievances, uh, the uh, recording of wrongs uh, that they have committed against me in my life is a trait that we do well to dispel from our lives. Disunity comes as we rejoice in iniquity, as we delight in evil and unrighteousness. Disunity comes as we hold the truth in disdain, right? rather than upholding the value of the truth, but we dismiss it as being of significance and importance. Disunity, uh, um, uh, it, it declines to protect, uh, it declines to trust, it declines to hope, it declines to persevere. Right? Think about that in the context of your personal dealings with others. Right? Uh, uh, so that uh, if you're not willing to bear another's burden, uh, that tends to fuel points of discontent and disunity. You can't trust the other person. Boy, it's hard to find something uh, that is more likely to inflame a breakdown uh, of the relationship or a fueling of tension between you. If you can't have a, a mutual sense of hope uh, in the future as you might work together within your relationship, then again, it will undermine it and it will bring a point of disunity within it. And of course, if you can't persevere and recognise, hey, we're all... At well, I hate to say this now because they keep overusing it, we're all in this together type phrase, but you know what I mean, right? We are part of a life where as individuals we are all, as Romans 8 reminds us, creatures together uh, and uh, fighting the flesh in the same way and being willing to persevere in that context and to do so even with each other's faults uh, is something that is at the essence of uh, finding a point of unity and uh, is to be avoided if we are to avoid the disunity that will come in our life. The Proverbs, uh, of course, give us a whole suite of scriptures 
uh, about the uh, risks associated uh, with contention and division and our ability to fuel that division. So let me just quickly take you through a view of this. You're welcome to turn to them, but I'm going to go through it quite quickly, otherwise I will get kicked off this platform. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10, it says, Only by pride comes contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 14, it says, The beginning of strife is as when one lets out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with or before a dispute breaks out. What a wonderful analogy that is. Right? Just sort of open the tap and let the pressure down. Right? Let the pressure ease before it explodes and causes a problem. Proverbs 18 verse 6 says, A fool's lips enters into contention and his mouth calls for strokes or invites a beating. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what comes out of your mouth uh, that, uh, you know, calls for a, a bit of a whack, right? And uh, sometimes what we say does deserve a bit of a slap. I'm not advocating that you should literally do that to each other, uh, but, you know, we should be wary about what comes out of our mouth because otherwise it invites a beating even if we shouldn't get one. In Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 10 it says, Cast out the scorner or the mocker, and contention shall go out, yea, strife and reproach shall cease. In Proverbs 26, from verse 20 to 22, it says, Where no wood is, there the fire goes out. So where there is no tail-bearer, the strife ceases. Right? Just stop talking behind his or her back, please. Right? Don't be a bearer of tails. As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a tail-bearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. And different translation says, The words of a whisperer or a slanderer are like dainty morsels or words of sport. To some but to others they are like deadly wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body or of the victim's nature. Right? Strong words, aren't they? Proverbs 26 and verse 18, it says, and verse 19, as a madman who casts firebrands, arrows, and what? And death, so is the man that deceives his neighbour and says, it's all just a joke, am not I in sport, it says. In, in Proverbs 18 and verse 19, it, we perhaps uh, uh, bring all this together. It says, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. Right? You achieve offence and it'll work, and it'll be harder to win the other back, right? which is one reason why we're told not to give offence uh, and indeed to work hard to avoid that. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Perhaps uh, in chapter 1, firstly, from about verse 3 of uh, chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul says that he thanks God upon every mem remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making request with joy, for your fellowship, for your active participation 
uh, we can see within that word. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's thanking God for that. He's thanking God for their fellowship. He's thanking God for their active participation together with the saints, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, if you read through the rest of this part of uh, Philippians and the next few verses there, he, he, he says, well, look, we're all about uh, getting on with the work and that's all great. Uh, I, I have to be in bonds at the moment. I'm in jail. Um, and uh, look, even as I'm in jail and I'm here, of course, because of, uh, and he calls them the bonds in Christ, right? He's there because he was preaching the word. He said even while he's in there, there are people out there who are preaching a Christ of, Christ of envy and strife and trying to make uh, uh, something of the fact that he was in jail. Uh, and uh, uh, he described it in verse 16 as the one preaching a Christ of contention, not sincerely uh, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Others, he said, however, are preaching a Christ of love, knowing that I am set for the defence of the gospel. And then he sort of uh, thinks about that. He said, well, they're all out there they're trying to preach a gospel. Some are actually, uh, you know, having a go at me for being in jail. Uh, and others are saying, well, look, I, I was just trying to do uh, the Lord's work. And, and he said, well, look, I, I can't really get to the bottom of that and to deal with that contention, although I suspect he thought those who were preaching a Christ of contention were on the wrong. Uh, but he said, what he'll rejoice in is the fact that Christ is preached. Uh, and then he says in verse 27, if you uh, pick it up toward the end of the chapter, he says, only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, I'd better off not having uh, points of contention and uh, uh, trying to make mileage of this or the other thing in a divisive way, uh, but rather to hold fast in a unity. And then he continues in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now this, of course, is speaking about uh, being of one mind on the things that matter. Right? At the end of the day, you will like pink and I might like blue, or you might like red and uh, I might not. Right? Uh, uh, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about uh, making us all into uh, uh, monotonic, autonomous beasts uh, so that uh, we're all, uh, uh, you know, in some lemming-type fashion, uh, uh, not being individuals in our walk in the Lord, but just following each other in some uh, mindless way. That's not what's being advocated here. Uh, what's being advocated is that with our independent minds, but guided by the Spirit and indeed uh, uh, building on that relationship of love both with God and uh, each other, uh, we can attain a point of unity so that we can be like-minded in that, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a, a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found 
in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For this reason, wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What a wonderful privilege it is to be part of that which might be described as a light in a dark world. Because if we can shine within this dark place, that's a pretty good thing to do, because it's pretty dark. Uh, and indeed, uh, there's so much uh, on a day-to-day basis that uh, rightly shocks us as to the state of in- iniquity that is within this world. Yet the invitation here, indeed, the command to us uh, is that within that crooked and perverse nation, we can be as lights shining in the world. And down in verse 24, I have no man, says Paul, who's like-minded, who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. What he says is, stop doing that. Stop seeking your own. And if we can perhaps finish in James chapter 1. And as you go there in James 1, I'll just quickly read from Galatians 5. Um Although you might like to go there. Why don't you go to Galatians 5? Because these are important verses and it won't take much longer. Galatians 5 verse 14. It says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, at least in one phrase, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. You might remember in Galatians 5 verse 9, just a few verses before it told us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And indeed, if we are ones who would bite and devour one another, then a pretty good bet that we're going to be consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You want to deal with the nature of man and its tendency to bring division and points of tension in life, then walk in the spirit so that uh, the spirit is able to uh, change you and transform you uh, on a daily basis. Let's finish then in James 1 and verse 19. It says in verse 19 of James chapter 1, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Right? That's uh, what James reckons we ought to do, and uh, it's pretty good advice. And I think in the context of uh, uh, the, the message that I've tried to share with you today, uh, even if it came from a curious examination of ants fighting each other, um, uh, then 
you know, let's take that to heart. Uh, because unity, while it's harder to achieve, is better uh, in its outcome for us all. All the people said. Mm-hmm.